Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to speak to us the truth, that we would see the realities of heaven before us, that you would show to us, even in your servant Abraham, the realities of your covenant promises kept to us in the person and work of Christ. We would ask, Lord, this morning that you would delight to once again draw a straight line with a crooked stick. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, or God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish or make to stand my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. There's a lot of angles I could have gone in this passage. Obviously, this passage speaks of circumcision. I could have taken time to have a, a lengthy sermon on how baptism and circumcision work together and who should receive that sign and all those kind of things, but I'm not going to take a lot of time to, to link those things, although I hope that by the time we're through with this sermon, you'll start to draw those connections. You'll start to see the realities of how what God says to Abraham here, what He says to Solomon what he says to David, and then what Peter says to people in the book of Acts, this promise is for you and your children, you'll start to draw that link. The point I really want us to look at here, though, is I think that God is saying something that lies behind why that even matters, why that's even important. And that's really what I want us to look at. What I really want us to start to understand in this passage of Scripture is that we start to see a reality of the covenant unfolding before us and this passage has been one of not, no small controversy in the last few years of exactly how God calls His people to faithfulness. How, what is our obedience in light of what God is calling people to, in light of what's being said here? Obviously, in this passage, God is calling Abraham to do something. 
He wants him to keep covenant with him. Obviously, there is an expectation being placed on Abraham. And the easy way to go is to say, Abraham does his part, God does his part, everybody's happy. But if you've learned nothing over the past three years of me being in this pulpit, and hopefully from other pastors who have been in this pulpit before, that is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not we do our part and God does his part. Biblical Christianity is you can do nothing to get God's favor. His favor is all of grace. And this passage is no different. Now, am I saying that it doesn't matter what we do? Clearly, it matters what we do. What I want us to see, though, is the proper order, the proper understanding, and the way that God is unpacking His covenant with Abraham so that Abraham sees clearly what God is up to and doing. Picture this. The last time we talked about Abraham, he was 86 years old. He's now 99. The last time we left him, he had two women that were at each other's throat, hating each other, jealous of one another. And God's been silent for 13 years. Remember this, folks. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine. There is no Bible. You know, in this modern age of, of so many translations, people have the luxury of going, well, that's not a good translation, and I like this translation better than that translation. And we know the King James Version, good enough for Paul, good enough for us, even though Paul spoke Greek. But that's beside the point. The, the, the reality is, is, that, is that we need to understand that, that that's a luxury we have. Think about Abraham. He has no translation. There is no Bible. There's just... Him and God. And periods of silence. And pressing forward. And hanging on. See, that's why we need to see the importance of this passage. Because, see, we do understand, as people who live in this world, that sometimes we come to places where all hell seems to be breaking loose around us. And it seems that God has been awfully quiet for a long time. And see, that's exactly the context that we have here in this passage, is that God has come to speak to Abram and to do some profoundly incredible things to him as a person and through him as a person. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. The first thing then, the first point I want us to see then, is the identity that God's covenant gives. Look at what God first comes and does. He says to him, and this is how it begins, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Now there's some discussion over exactly what El Shaddai means, and uh, if you really are that interested in all the different nuances that one could do with that word, I'll leave that for your perusal at another time. The two basic ideas that I think are, are best descriptive of this is the God who is steadfast or the God who is mighty. And in either case, if he's going to be steadfast, in other words, steadfast in being able to enable you to stand, he's got to be mighty enough to do it. So to me, all that wordsmithing gets us to the same place. This is a God who's able to do what he says he's able to do. He has the power and the strength 
and the wisdom to execute it. And that's the idea of El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the notion that when he shows up and says to Abram, I am the God who is mighty. Think about where Abram is. Two women. An unsettled household. A child that he's highly suspicious of is not the heir either. And thinking, Lord, I'm 99 years old. Sarah's old. And we're even gonna, we even know that he ultimately says, why don't you just use Ishmael? We've got him. But see, what God is coming to tell Abram is, Abram, your eyes and your vision is not big enough. You need to see a bigger view of me. I am the God who's able to accomplish anything, anything. And here's what I've set out to accomplish. So the first thing I want us to do as we look at the identity of God's covenant is that God, first of all, identifies that covenant with Himself. This is my covenant. Not Abram's covenant. Not the Church of North America's covenant. Not the Baptist, the Presbyterians, or the Methodist covenant. It's the Lord's covenant. It's His He's setting the terms. He's setting the way this thing will work. We need to see the identity of this is with Him. It's His covenant from start to finish. And so as we look at this, what I want us to see is that Abram is then called to a particular life in light of who God is. And that's incredibly important. It's not Abram's call to a particular life. It's in the context of who God is that God then says to him, walk before me blameless. Now that word blameless is a very interesting word and it's one that we ought to take a few minutes to think through. Blameless basically has two meanings that we see throughout Genesis and, and most of the, of the old, early Old Testament corpus all the way up to Judges. It means one of two things. It either means to have, it's talking about our lifestyle, to have integrity of lifestyle or to have honesty. So we see Joshua use it in 24, which many of you know the verses that come after that where he says choose this day whom you will serve. But what he says right before that is this same word, blameless. He says, as for you, choose. Be blameless. Have integrity in what decision you make. If you want to worship the gods of the Amorites, if you want to worship the gods of the Egyptians, you do that. But as for me and my house, we'll have integrity of worshiping the Lord. So that idea there of integrity. Here it has more the idea of lifestyle. The idea of this is how you should live before God. The idea of blamelessness. This is a lifestyle. So don't get caught up in just particular issues. And I want to say that even this may help us start to understand how we read our Bibles. Especially as we get into the New Testament. Especially when we start to understand Paul saying the law has been put away and this is the law, the law, the law. The law is a tutor. See, what he's really calling Abram to do is to actually be thoughtful. He's not giving him specifics necessarily. He's just saying, be blameless before me. Now I want you to understand this. What God's saying is, Abram, if you catch a vision of me as God Almighty, it will transform how you live your life. So it's almost like, this is who I am. If you see it, walk blamelessly before me. Walk in a lifestyle which characterizes the fact that you see me. 
so you see the connection. Lifestyle is being affected by your understanding of and vision of God. If I see Him clearly, or the more clearly I see Him, the more that begins to transform my manner of living. Why? Because I start to live in accordance with who He's revealed Himself to be. That starts to change and transform my life. And that's what God is calling him to. So there's this idea of this identity of lifestyle. Now, has God given Abram some commands that would start to give him some idea of how to look at this? Yes. Think back to 12. What did God tell him? He said, go or leave. Leave these people and go to a place I'll show you. Do we have commands like that in the New Testament? Leave your old manner of lifestyle. Go ye therefore in all nations, preach lifestyle. This is the manner of living. We're, we're people who are called to leave certain things. We're people that are sent people. We're called. So God has already begun to show this to Abram. Do not fear, God tells him in 15. How many times just in the birth narratives of Jesus do we hear, do not be afraid, fear not. The angel appeared to Joseph, don't be afraid. The angels appeared to the shepherd, don't be afraid. Jesus shows up to his disciples after he's resurrected, do not be afraid. The writers of the New Testament, don't fear, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be scared. So the understanding that Abram is getting in this lifestyle is he's supposed to live a fearless lifestyle. Look heavenward, he's told. Look up at the stars and count them. Get your eyes off of yourself and look at the promises of God. Paul tells us in Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And then in Colossians 3, he says, get your mind in heaven where Christ is, seated at the right. You see this idea that Abram has been given? It's not that alien to us. We know this kind of language. We've heard it before. This lifestyle of the way he's supposed to live. And then lastly, here he comes and begins to say, walk before me. We've heard that language before. Walk in a manner worthy. Walk before me. Live before me. So what I want us to see is, is that part of what God's covenant does to us is it begins to change the manner of lifestyle we lead. It does. Not it can, it does. If you truly see God in any measure for who He says He is, it has to start impacting the way you look at your life. And I think that's incredibly encouraging. It's also profound here that again, as I come back and say to you, God doesn't give Abram a whole bunch of lists of things he's supposed to do and not do. He says, catch a vision of me. See the reality of who I am. Look at who you are in relationship to me. That is the transformative thing that God is looking for in this passage. Now, the second thing I want us to look at under the identity of God's covenant gives is notice that God changes his name. We're going to see throughout this section here that names are incredibly important. Nomenclature. Your name means something. So here we see that God changes his name from the exalted father to the father of a multitude of nations. Now, in light of the passage that 
Dick Riggleman just read to us, right, Cornelius, we ought to start to already draw the implications of that, right? He's the father of a multitude of nations. His name is changed to mean, I am the father. So what we see in this passage is an interesting reality that's going on. There's a certain aspect which unites him to his Jewishness. But his name unites him to being the father of all those who will be saved. The father of a multitude of nations. What we also see then is the identity of a people. He tells him that he is calling him to be united to a people. That Abram, as his name is changed to Abraham, and as they give him this sign of, of circumcision, that he is uniting him to this group of people. That they're all united to God and united to one another. If you don't have the sign, you're not a part. The reality is that he's identifying him with a particular people. Now one of the things that's interesting that we need to remember is many nations around Abraham circumcised. Circumcision was not unique to Abraham. Now, if you ever want to have, have a desire to go to seminary, here's the kind of things you can look forward to. We used to have this discussion in class with, did God create circumcision in the mind of people so that when the time came for him to use it for Abraham, it was there? Or did God just allow man's mind to, to move in these things and he co-opted something they had created? That's the kind of stuff sometimes you talk about in class. I'm not sure the, the nth degree of the purpose of that, but it does seem to hone and sharpen minds. I don't really know which one of those it is. I don't know why God chose this particular sign in, in one sense, other than to say that ultimately what it's pointing to is something greater than the sign itself. Now we're going to talk a little bit about this sign and hopefully we'll have a better understanding of what God did, but ultimately how God arrived at circumcision, I don't know that that's really important. The fact that he did choose circumcision and what it points to, that's the focus that ought to consume our minds. And so as we look at this, we see that God is uniting him to a people with a particular sign and a particular seal which links them together, which says you're united to God Almighty. And so you see that that sign becomes incredibly important. And so now let's look at the second point then, which is the sign God's covenant requires. I want you to notice several things about this sign. God's changed Abraham's name. He said, look, you're Abraham now. This is who you are. You're the father of many nations. Now this becomes the sign of this covenant I'm making with you. I'm making this covenant with you which says that you must be circumcised in the foreskin of your flesh. Now I want you to notice here, folks, that God is calling on Abraham to do something really powerful. Abraham is to be circumcised because he recognizes who God is. Abraham is to circumcise his children because he knows who God is. All of that's taking place in this because he's going to circumcise. Notice that God says, on the eighth day, circumcise your children. Now, rather than getting into a debate over does an, eight year, does an eight-day-old know what does an eight-year-old capable of believing, that's really irrelevant because, see, the focus of this sign has nothing to do with the one who's having the sign given to. It has everything to do with the one who has given the sign. And that's what I want you to begin to see here, that this sign that God requires is really about God and His faithfulness to His people. That's where the focus lies. That's where the point ultimately has to be seen. What we see then is this, that God signifies 
for himself a sign. For himself, God sees this sign. When God saw the children of Israel, circumcised men, and He knew why they'd been circumcised, God remembered His covenant to do what? To keep His covenant to Abraham, to give Him a son, to be a father of a multitude of nations, to carry out all these acts. What we want to see then is that this act is everything to do with God. God being faithful. God keeping covenant. God doing what He promised. Now, did Abraham have to do something? Yes. He had to be circumcised. But do you understand that the circumcision was primarily for God? It was primarily for God to be, for Him to remember that God was being faithful to Him and to show forth to God, here are your faithful people. That's why the sign's given. And ultimately the sign is given so that we see clearly that all of this rests in God's hands. Right? Where does God, where does Abraham get the knowledge to circumcise? from God. Who gives the significance of that sign? God does. Who comes to make covenant? God does. Who assures that that covenant will will stand? God does. See, the language in some cases in our text is not always the best because the thing is, he says, behold, my covenant is with you in verse 4, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. See, he says, no longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be, or Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you Think about that. I have made you. Not you did something, so I did this. I made you this. I have created you. I have transformed you. I have done. It's God who's the primary actor here. Everything that Abraham is doing is in light of what God has done. And so we need to understand that this circumcision sign was supposed to draw Abraham and all his descendants to see God in his faithfulness, to remember what God had done and as a sign to God of remembering his faithfulness to us. Now, part of that we see in the Lord's Supper as well. I've I've said this before, and, and I really want to draw the link between our signs and seals is this. We call upon God every time we take of the Lord's Supper. We ask God to remember the covenant he made with Jesus. He promised Jesus a people for his own possession. And what was the cost of Christ? His life. You see, what I'm trying to get you to understand is sacraments are as much about God and him being called to remember what he's done. And that's why he's given this sign to Abraham. Abraham looks down and says, yes, the Lord, I'm cut in my flesh God remembers. That's literally what we're supposed to be thinking about here. Now, I know that's kind of earthy and kind of racy, but that literally is it. This is the organ that produces life. What has He told Abram? We're going to produce life through you. All of this starts to take place. You understand, you see God's faithfulness in the procreative act. You see God's faithfulness all the time. We see that. Do you understand? We see signs and seals. Therefore, our vision, they're to engage us. We tend to lots of times want to clean these things up. But do you understand that the cross is a bloody mess? Circumcision with a stone knife is a bloody mess. It's a bloody mess. See and remember that God is able. See and remember that God keeps His promises. See and remember, I've told you you're going to have a child. 
you're going to have a child. From this day forward, from the time that Abraham became circumcised in his flesh, he and Sarah could never forget, God is almighty and keeps his promises. Now, I need to be that graphic with you, and I need us to be big people here to think about this, because that's what's going on. When we see a person baptized, when we see the Lord's Supper given, we're being told to see and remember, because God is seeing and remembering. He keeps His promises. And notice the point is, who's keeping His promises? God is. That's why the issue of, any, of anything that we're doing, especially when it comes to circumcision, this is the one we really need to see this morning, circumcision, and baptism in its New Testament counterpart, the focus is on God, not on the recipient. Do you see that? If the focus is on God and Him remembering what He's promised to do, whose condition is supposed to be thought about? God's, not the recipient's. Do you understand that? Do you see how that starts to erase a whole lot of these discussions? The focus is on God and Him remembering His covenant. Him keeping His covenant. These signs point us to God and to God keeping His covenant with His people. The next thing I want us to look at then is the idea of how this sign works. This sign works like this, and I want you to think about this from now on. When we take the Lord's Supper or when we see someone baptized, I want you to think that there is a microscope view and a telescope view that we're always to keep in mind. When we look at baptism, there's a certain microscope view. And what does a microscope do? It takes something that seems small and it pulls it up really close so we can really take a look at it. Every time we see someone baptized, partly what we're supposed to do is get out our microscope and pull it up really close and go, oh, I'm united to Christ and here are all the benefits I'm adopted as a very own child. I'm justified. I'm sanctified. All these things are wrapped up and tied up into that promise. All of that baptism is pointing us to. These are the realities that Christ is promised to us. That our, we're united to Him. And that these are the things, these are the benefits, if you will. So we have this microscope view. There's also this telescope view. Sacraments are always reminding us of looking forward to what God is continuing to do. It always points us out. See, notice that Abraham is told, this is how you'll know that I'm going to keep my promise to you of a son and a multitude of generations. Abraham wasn't going to live long enough to see that. How did he know that was going to be true? The sign was a seal. I said it. It's done. That's the way it is. So you begin to see how these things work. We begin to look forward and see everything that he's promised us is going to happen. It's true. It's as good as done. Every time we see a child baptized, every time we see an adult baptized, we should remember, it's good as done. God is at work. He's faithful to His promises. He's going to do what He promised to do. That's how we should look at the signs and the seals. That's what God is up to. The last thing is, it's generational. Notice what He says here. He talks about the fact that it's for your, for you and for your children and for everybody coming after you, this is how this sign is supposed to be given. And our last thing I want us to look at then is the fact that it's not optional. Notice what God's saying to Abraham. You must be cut on or you will be cut off from the people of God. That's literally what it says in Hebrew. You must be cut on or you will be cut off. 
So the point here is the idea of this. You must, lest you think this is somehow a different thing, you must be saved by Jesus. We see it in the Exodus, don't we? The blood needs to cover the doorway. The issue wasn't so much what was happening inside the house. The issue was, was the blood over the house. If the blood was over the doorway, what happened? The angel of death passed over. If there wasn't blood on the house, you could be the best Israelite, circumcised, catechized, the whole nine yards. No blood on the door, angel of death comes knocking. There must be this sign or there is no salvation. That's what God's saying to him. Not because of the sign itself, but because of what it signifies. That God is your Savior. That your trust is in God. See, why in the world if God says, paint blood over the doorway, don't you go home and kill a goat and paint blood over the doorway? Don't you believe when God says, I'm going to come and the death angel is going to come and kill? Don't you believe him when he says that? See, that's really what's at stake here. When we come, that's why it's so important that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we actually come in faith. I believe Jesus' promises. I really trust Him. I'm really putting my faith in Him. That's the idea of coming in an unworthy manner. You don't really believe Jesus can forgive your sins. You think there's something too big for God. I don't even believe God can help me like that person over there in the pew that I'm having trouble with. See, that's really the issue. It's an issue of belief. These signs are to be believed. God keeps His promises. The last thing I want us to look at then is the blessing God's covenant assures. Part of this blessing is temporary. Part of it is a temporal blessing. God promises Him this land, all those kind of things. We understand that From the writer of Hebrews, it tells us that the thing that made Abraham really a faithful guy was the fact that he wasn't looking for a little plot of land in in Palestine. He was looking for cities whose foundations are built by God. He was looking for something greater than just a little plot of dusty, mountainous region over next to the Mediterranean Sea. He was looking for something greater. So while God says this is an everlasting covenant, Abraham gets it. This plot of land points to the greater realities that God has for me. It's pointing me to something better. So the idea is part of the blessing was temporal. The people would come into the land. They would clear the land. They would have this land. They would live. They would have all these people. The generation line would go all the way down until a certain point. And then things would get really exciting. That's what all this is pointing to. So there's a certain temporariness to this. There's also an expansive nature of the blessings of God. Look at what happens here. He's talking about, as I said before, this generation, this expanding nature. I'm going to make you a father of of nations. This, This is going out further and further and further so that the blessing is profound. It's bigger. And I want you to notice this. In the New Testament, what happens with the sign? It gets bigger. Only boys got the sign in the Old Testament. Now, boys and girls get the sign in the New Testament. It's bigger. It's more profound. It's growing. It's expansive. But there's also an equality to this that's profound as well. And I think we start to see this pick up in Jesus. People could understand Jesus. He seemed to treat everybody the same. Rich man, poor man. Gentile Jew, 
they all seem to be, if they're connected to him, one. And that doesn't make any sense to us. See, what we see here is an equality that Jesus brings. And you see it in this passage, don't you? Abraham, you're going to produce kings. You're royalty. You need to get the circumcision sign. And of course, the princes of your, of your loins need to get that sign. But who else? Oh, a servant born in your house. Oh, they need to get the sign too. Oh, and one bought needs to get the sign too. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see this equality that God... You see it right here in Genesis 17? You don't have to run off to Galatians to find this out. Right here in Genesis 17, you see the thinking of God. You don't have to go to James to learn the lifestyle of a Christian. If a rich man comes into your midst and you show him more favor than a poor man, you don't have to just go to James. Right here you see the foundation of how Christians are called to live. The sign is for all of you who believe. Rich, poor, black, white. Good tan, not a good tan. It's for all of us. The equality of God is seen in this passage to Abraham. A blessing. Because that's not how we think. We're tribal. We're sectarian. We always find a reason why you're out and, and this person's in. If we're all the down and outers, well, we're the down and outers, and we don't, let, we don't let those who are not down and out in. If we're not down and outers, then we're all together with all the, who are, those people who are not down and outers. And if we don't really care about down and outers or not down and outers, we're the group that doesn't care about those two groups. We're profound in our ability to segregate. And what we see here is that God is profound in His ability to unite every tribe, every nation, every tongue into a people for His own possession. Now, the thing I want us to see then is this. If you really start to get that idea, and I've left this intentionally, I want to come back to that word blameless as we come to the end. Because I really want you to get this. Part of the debates that have happened is that people want to wrestle with that word blameless. God's calling Abraham to be blameless. Abraham can't be perfect, therefore blameless must not mean blameless. But I want you to think about this, men and women. Every animal sacrifice that was supposed to be brought to the temple was supposed to be blameless, without blemish. It was to be perfect. Yet what do we find out from the writer of Hebrews about all those quote-unquote perfect sacrifices. They ultimately could not stop sin or cleanse the conscience of its guiltiness. And in the same way here, what we see is a life of blamelessness that a man, a human sinful man can live or a human sinful woman can live cannot stop sin. And that's what we ultimately need to see is what's really happening in this passage. Because you always have to read it in light of Christ. You haven't read this passage unless you see how this passage ultimately points us to Christ. Here's the point that you need to see. Christ came and lived the blameless life none of us could ever live, just like he was the, the, spot, the lamb without spot or blemish, like none of the sacrifices in the Old Testament could ever be. They were never... That whole system 
could not stand forever. If it had stood forever, we would never really have forgiveness. All of this is pointing us to the greater reality of Christ. Colossians tells us this. Paul tells us there that Jesus was circumcised on the cross for us. You see, ultimately what circumcision was supposed to point people to was something greater than the circumcision itself. This is why Paul can say in Galatians, circumcision is of no value in light of the surpassing greatness of Christ. See, once you start to get hold of this, you start to see that all of this is pointing us to Christ. If you would have a lifestyle that's changed, you have to come to Jesus. You can't do it yourself. I just went to a concert recently and I, I listened to some of the, the, the things that they're doing and I signed my name onto it because it's fighting world hunger and I think as Christians we ought to be concerned about world hunger because we ought to be concerned about the poor because we're all about equal. We believe that people have value but also recognize that the whole way that these folks come to that conclusion is, is backwards. They don't see that Famine and poverty is a result of sin. They don't see that famine and poverty is a result of man turning his back on God. But we do. And the only way you can ever really start to be effective in this world and start changing things is to realize that it's only through Christ that it ultimately can be changed. It truly is. Christ truly is concerned about the poor. And He's more concerned about the poor than any of us will ever be. There's no cause that will ever achieve what only Christ can accomplish. And that is the transformation of the human heart away from being a murderer and a thief to a lover and a uniter. From a heart that wants to make war to a heart that wants to make peace. From a heart that distrusts because it's watched person after person after person do it harm to a person that says, your ability to harm me is at a stop because my Jesus loves me and that's enough. You see, that's what God's really calling Abraham to, is to a place where he will trust that God is able to care for him no matter what the circumstances are, famine or riches, suffering or enjoyment of pleasure, whatever comes our way in this life has to be transformed by how we look at the person and work of Jesus. That's what ultimately these signs are drawing us to. Do you see Jesus as sufficient? Do you see that Jesus is mighty to save, that he is able to conquer whatever is set before you? If you see that, then you're getting the whole issue of the Lord of the Covenant because the Lord of the Covenant is one who is mighty and He's given a sign that points to that and He says, look to Jesus and in Jesus all these realities, all these promises, all these blessings are yours. May God help us to believe that and see it. Amen.